Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today, the Trump administration's rapid overhaul of the federal courts, how Republican lawyers and lawmakers are working together to install conservative judges at a rate not seen in decades. It's Monday, November 20th. Something that people aren't talking about is how many judges we've had approved, whether it be the Court of Appeals, circuit judges, whether it be district judges. We have tremendous right now under review. So just after Christmas in 2016, a group of conservative lawyers gathered at a law firm called Jones Day, which is in the shadows of the Capitol, about a block away from Congress, where in a room on a large whiteboard, a lawyer named Donald McGahn, who had been the top Trump campaign lawyer and was going to be the top White House lawyer in the new Trump administration, drew up something of a battle plan for all the vacancies on the federal appeals court that President-elect Trump was going to inherit. Charlie Savage has been reporting on the plan for The Times. Trump wanted McGahn and the legal team working for him to move expeditiously and make a strong priority of maximizing their opportunity to reshape the federal judiciary. And I, I want to say that we will set records in terms of the number of judges. And if to really put a lot of very young, very conservative judges into all the openings that they were inheriting from President Obama and those that were soon to open up. I think it's one of the big unsung things of this administration. How many open judicial seats are we talking about? Trump was set to inherit 21 open seats on the federal appeals courts, the 12 regional courts around the country that are just below the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. with many, many more waiting in the wings. The federal judiciary is at an unusually aged state on average, and a much larger number than normal of judges are already eligible to mm -hmm. take semi-retirement so that a new president can nominate and confirm their replacement or will soon be. Almost half of the federal bench could turn over by the end of Trump's first term. Half of all federal judges. Wow. So Trump, as president-elect, finds himself in this moment where he has an unusual number of seats open and a plan to install a bunch of conservative judges in those seats. That's right. And there, there's another reason why this was going to be a unique moment. 
uh, President Trump was going to be the first Republican president since Democrats had changed the rules in late 2013 for judicial nominations and eliminated the ability of minority lawmakers to block judicial nominations with a filibuster, which meant that any judge that Trump nominated and a simple majority of Republican senators could be pushed through without any ability by Democrats to block him. For too long, Washington has been in gridlock, gridlock, gridlock. The American people are sick of this. We're sick of it. Is it- During the Obama years, Republicans increasingly would not allow votes on nominees, even though the Democrats had a Senate majority because they used the filibuster rule to prevent anything from coming to a vote. The obstruction we've seen from Republicans against President Obama has reached new heights never dreamed of. In November of 2013, Harry Reid led Senate Democrats into what they called the nuclear option, which changed the Senate's rules to prevent the use of a filibuster to block lower court judges from having up or down confirmation votes. The historic rules change strips Republicans of their power to block the president's executive and judicial nominees, except the Supreme Court. Uh, Republicans sort of warned them that they would regret that. In my view, this is the... uh most important and most dangerous restructuring of Senate rules since Thomas Jefferson wrote them at the beginning of our country. It's really not about the filibuster. Uh, It's another raw exercise of political power to permit the majority to do anything it wants whenever it wants to do it. And in, in leading up to this, after Democrats changed that rule and then quickly lost control of the Senate, Republicans in 2015 and 2016 had essentially shut down the confirmation process and retaliation. They had only let President Obama appoint one appeals court judge in his final two years in office. So there were a lot of vacancies and there was a big opportunity to shove through judges who in the past could not have survived confirmation. So it sounds like two things that happened during the Obama administration have come together to benefit President Trump. One is that one of the reasons so many seats are open on the judicial bench in the first place is that Republicans blocked nearly all of President Obama's nominees. So the seats just stayed open. And the other is that the Democrats doing away with this filibuster has actually now made it easier for Republicans to fill those seats with whoever they want. Does all this leave President Trump with a sort of unprecedented opportunity to remake the American judiciary? So a lot of this will depend on how many of those judges choose to retire. But at least in theory, he's well positioned to do so. And already at this point in time, he's already been able to appoint eight federal appeals court judges. That is the most in nearly 50 years by a president this early in his administration. There's really quite an assembly line of very young, very conservative judges that Mm -hmm. this White House has put together and Senate Republican allies are moving expeditiously. The clerk will now call the roll on Mr. Talley. Mr. Lee. Aye. Mr. Cruz. Aye. Mr. Sass. Aye, by proxy. Mr. Flake. Aye. So who is this president choosing? for these open spots in the judiciary? What's the profile of these nominees? So focusing on the appeals courts, which are the ones where the power really lies, Mm -hmm. these are generally very well-credentialed 
nominees. They went to Ivy League schools. They tended to a clerk for very famous appeals court judges and Supreme Court justices on the far conservative end of the spectrum. These are Clarence Thomas clerks, Antonin Scalia clerks, and so forth. So they're unabashed, outspoken, conservative legal movement style nominees. I think these are the same kinds of judicial nominees that a President Rubio or a President Romney Hmm. or a President McCain would be making if he were also in the situation in which there were no filibuster and there was no need to compromise with Democrats. You know, the stars have aligned that it's President Trump who gets to do that first, but his conservative nominees are sort of the standard mold of what a Republican president would like to do if he faced no constraints. Well, as I think you know, we, uh, we're confirming circuit judges uh, here in the Senate this week. Uh, as we have had circuit judges emerge from the Judiciary Committee, I've immediately scheduled them. We've already confirmed four. At the end of this week, we will have confirmed eight. Uh, to put that in perspective, uh, in President Obama's first year, when he had 60 Democratic senators, they did three uh, circuit judges. So we think we're on pace here to begin to make substantial changes in the federal judiciary, which is one of uh, President Trump's uh, commitments to the American people, a commitment that we share uh, here in the Senate. To date, these judicial nominations have been a rare unifying bright spot for the Republican Party, even as it has fractured over so many other things, Hmm. like what to do about Obamacare, or now we're seeing a lot of disagreement over tax reform. They all agree that these are the kinds of judges that Republicans like. As a result, they've been voting in lockstep to confirm each of these nominees as it comes through. Charlie, tell us about these courts that we're talking about. Regional, appellate, what do they do and how much influence do they actually have? So most people who are ordinary people and not lawyers pay attention only to the Supreme Court. But underneath that are two layers of lower court judges and then appeals court judges. There are 12 regional appeals courts around the country, one in D.C. and then 11 circuits based in various cities ranging from San Francisco to New York and Atlanta and Chicago and so forth. Mm -hmm. And they actually have tremendous amounts of power. What could be a stunning blow to President Trump's travel ban? A federal judge at this hour granting a Washington attorney general's request to immediately halt President Trump's executive order on immigration nationwide. Judge Robart's decision, effective immediately, effective now, puts a halt to President Trump's unconstitutional and unlawful executive order. A U.S. court is once again blocking a move by the White House, barring the Trump administration from excluding transgender people from serving in the military. The Supreme Court only hears about 80 cases a year, but there's about 60,000 cases that go through the federal judiciary every year. So the overwhelming majority of those 60,000, it's the appeals courts that will have the final word on what will happen. It's the appeals courts really where things like these culture war issues over how do we interpret the abstract and vague words of the Constitution when it comes to matters like due process and so forth really start to matter. You've covered the justice system through multiple administrations now. And I wonder, wouldn't a Democratic president with a Democratic majority in the Senate do exactly the same thing that Trump is now doing, given the opportunity? I think this is one of the most interesting questions about the new playbook we're seeing now. Now we're seeing what it looks like when there's no filibuster 
And when a party is willing to hold open seats when it has the Senate and the president is of the opposite party, and then when there's one party control again to Hmm. rapidly fill those up. That is a playbook for right now having some very conservative judges fill openings. Your question is, what is to prevent Democrats from following that same playbook? Let's say they take back the Senate and they won't let Trump make any more nominees. And then when Elizabeth Warren or someone becomes president, suddenly will they fill the bench with outspoken liberals? Hmm. If that happens, we will see an extraordinarily polarized federal bench. It'll look just like Congress, where you can just look at the panel you have and more so than now say, ah, I've got two Democrats and one Republican, or I've got two Republicans and one Democrat. I know how this case is going to be decided. Hmm. Uh, That may not be great for the uh, rule of law in America. Charlie, what would be the consequences of what you just described? A judiciary that starts to look as partisan and polarized as Congress itself. As we get to a federal bench, if we get to a federal bench that is more and more polarized ideologically, I think the sense of the maybe the myth of the rule of law as something that exists above politics will erode, hmm. and with it, uh, you know, respect for the legitimacy of the legal system as a way of resolving disputes. It's a new day in terms of how judges are created in this country, and it's going to have consequences that we are only beginning to think about. The judge story is an untold story. Nobody wants to talk about it. But when you think about it, Mitch and I were saying, that has consequences 40 years out, depending on the age of the judge, but 40 years out. So numerous have been approved. Many, many are in the pipeline. The level of quality is extraordinary. And I just wanted to say that uh, we're working very closely on that also and getting... uh, really great reviews from those people and in many cases some scholars that have been studying it. There has never been anything like what we've been able to do together with judges. So with that, I'd like to have Mitch say a few words. And if you want to do a little question and answer, we can do that also. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. When times became uncertain, Womply pivoted their technology platform and committed to help small businesses and self-employed workers get approved for their PPP loan. In just a few months, Womply has helped one million businesses across America to secure much-needed funding so they can continue to stay open and serve their communities. Womply helps small businesses thrive. Visit Womply.com to learn more. Here's what else you need to know today. A Times investigation into the New York City subway system, one of the largest in the world, found that decades of poor decision-making, lack of accountability, and system-wide underinvestment has brought it to the brink of crisis and resulted in the worst on-time performance of any major rapid transit system. A former chairman of the MTA, Richard Ravitch, told The Times, quote, This is the lifeblood of the city. And yet nobody cares about it enough to think more than four years ahead. And today's meeting with the command element has underscored the need for us to collectively start processes that return our nation to normalcy. In a 20-minute televised speech on Sunday night, 
Robert Mugabe, the embattled president of Zimbabwe, stunned the nation by refusing to say if he would resign after a bloodless coup in which his own military placed him under house arrest last week. I, as the president of Zimbabwe, and as their commander-in-chief, do acknowledge the issues they have drawn my attention to. The speech came hours after Mugabe's party expelled him as leader, a massive power shift in a country where he has ruled since 1980, when Zimbabwe declared independence from Britain. Mugabe was given a choice to resign by noon on Monday or face impeachment by parliament. Instead, the Congress is due in a few weeks from now. I will preside over its processes, which must not be prepossessed by any acts calculated to undermine it or to compromise the outcomes in the eyes of the public. Mugabe insisted he would oversee an upcoming conference of the party he no longer leads. Let us all move forward, reminding ourselves of our wartime mantra. Iweneni tinebasa. I thank you and good night. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow. You're still running your business on QuickBooks? More like quicksand. The bigger your company grows, the faster you sync with outdated software. NetSuite by Oracle is the scalable solution to run all key back office operations, no matter how big your company grows. 93% of surveyed organizations increase visibility and control since making the switch from QuickBooks to NetSuite. Right now, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program. Head to netsuite.com daily. That's special financing at netsuite.com daily. netsuite.com daily.